Hello, and welcome to Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting. I'm your host, Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and today I'm joined by Maria Ferris to discuss creating order from data chaos in big insurers. Maria is an actuary with extensive experience throughout Europe and Australia, who now specialises in establishing the enterprise data functions of multinational insurers. She is currently the Enterprise Data Officer at trade credit insurer Atradius, and she also advises companies within the insure tech space on the use of data to comply with data protection laws. Maria, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Genevieve. The insurance sector owes its existence entirely to data, and insurers were some of the first companies in history to utilise data expertise in the form of actuaries. Yet being an early adopter isn't always as great as it seems. And many big insurers are now discovering the challenges of bringing their long established data systems into the 21st century. In many ways, this task is one of creating order from chaos. But given the size of some of these organizations, it doesn't sound easy. Yet, Maria, you've managed to build a career for yourself by doing just that. How did you end up becoming the go-to person for big insurers wanting to build an enterprise data function, often from scratch? Well, it's been a somewhat of a long journey. Uh, as you know, I'm an actuary. However, very soon I realized all the fancy techniques and all the accuracies with six decimal points kind of pale in comparison when you deal with the volume of data quality issues. So you like to be very precise with your model, but if 30% of the quality of the data you use is questionable, how accurate is really your output? So very soon I realized that while at university we talk about precision of calculation and accurate modeling, the input to the, to the model itself is often not discussed. We, we kind of took it for granted at university that you have perfect data um, when you do your analysis. So I very quickly started thinking, how should we do this? And as actuarial department often struggle with their data quality, I became the person who we kind of divided the tasks in a way. I said, I check the data, clean it up, reconcile it, ensure it's complete, and actuaries run their work, and then I do the peer review because I wasn't actually involved in the process of doing the analysis. So it kind of, I came at the beginning, at the end of that process at times when I was working as an actuary. And then slowly I thought I should expand to see what else is going on in the data scene. And then uh, in one of my roles, I became the reporting manager, financial reporting, including some of the actuarial topics and superannuation topics. And then I had to actually build the reporting structure from ground up, which required now for the first time dealing with enterprise architecture, data architect, the backend, the system engineers. And I realized that there may be even more data in the company that we are not using, or data is sitting in legacy systems we are not using. So I had very early exposure to data issues. And that is something that uh, inspired me, because if actuaries don't have good data, then we are kind of not achieving as much as we should be, right? So this is how my career kind of got started. And then I, as I became the go-to person to build up the reporting function, which naturally sits on having proper data management, master data, metadata, as the companies expanded, I kind of 
took a step back, the layer before the reporting, the layer before you can actually have MIBI capabilities. So kind of you can think about me going from the very end of the process where the actuaries do the reporting and, and comment on it to kind of step-by-step step walking backward to data sources and source management and all of that. So my journey has been kind of by experience trying to get to the bottom of, of a problem. And as technology has grown, the problem hasn't become better because we kind of deploy tools as a way of solving a problem that is really a data management and business problem. The tools have just meant that people can misuse and mismanage data at a larger scale and faster because the data function started way after the IT flourished and became mature. If you look into the companies, having a CIO is kind of taken for granted. You must have a CIO to, to run an insurance company. However, majority of insurers don't have a CDO, which means there is the user, there is technology and a mountain of unmanaged data. So you can sooner use and abuse the data than actually really drive value from it. Before we recorded this episode, you described me your job as being someone who brings order to data chaos. Data chaos is going to mean different things to different people. So that everyone's on the same page, can you describe what you mean by data chaos? Data chaos means, for example, uh, actuarial team decides we need to do analysis A, we go and get data. How do we get it? We go find it. Each group goes and negotiates kind of uh, data that they hoard, they have a data source. On the other hand, the underwriting team may have a very similar problem. They go about it in a different way. So they use a different tool, different definitions. The gross written premium doesn't mean the same to everyone because one says, oh, mine excludes A, mine includes this, revenue excludes. So the data definitions are not clear. So one of the first things I experienced is being in an executive meeting and they were sitting for the better part of the meeting arguing whose revenue values are correct because the sales department was there then there was the finance department with different information then you had the strategy with the different numbers and projections and they couldn't agree on the numbers so that is for me the definition of chaos where you don't know what is the truth so where does that come from is the fact that there is no control over the definition definitions across the company. There is no control over duplication of sources. Actually, it all takes a copy of this database, then they do something with it, then they copy it again. If you look at, uh, for example, profit models, each person goes in, creates their own variable because they're trying to run something and there's no control. At some point, 10 years down the lane, you end up with 300 calculations. Each person has named it their own way. So there is basically no gatekeeper to the business activities that leads to a result. They are ungoverned as a matter of speaking. So this is one version of chaos. We don't know what's true, what's not. Would point in time also be another issue that you'd face there? So one group is getting their data at this point in time and another at another point in time? Of course, the rolling 12, the end of the year, you know, financial year end. Financial year end is not always matching the, you know, the, the calendar year end. And so there is a lot of those type of issues going on. The chaos is, uh, is actually unsustainable in the long term, in my opinion, and in part because technology gives capabilities to business to do stuff with, with the data. 
So before copying a database was not so easy because you didn't have a space and you didn't have the memories and you didn't. But now you can just replicate all sorts of things. I have spoken to CTOs and uh, who tell me they spend so much money on a storage and they don't know where the copies are. There are multiple copies. So when we should have a disaster recovery situation, the team that does the disaster recovery doesn't know which version they need to recover because there is five copies in this in this location. There's another three copies there. Both of them have been used at the same time. So what do we recover and where do we put it is, is, is some of the issues. Do these organisations have data warehouses? Yes, a lot of the issue becomes when you're geographically dispersed and subjected to different regulations and sometimes through acquisition companies have grown. Uh, creating one central warehouse is not so easy. And then becomes the issue of ownership and data protection. If you create one big data warehouse, access management can become somewhat difficult. Who can access what tables? Uh, you have to have very good controls. The, the capabilities must be available to manage that. Uh, we are past the days where actuarial team and finance were the only ones using the data and those were a small team. So you can just say, okay, you can self-manage. Now we are talking about MIBI capabilities that sits on a massive database. So yes, some of them do have it. Some have multiple. Some are hoping to get have one, but the requirements are very unclear. There's slow-moving, you know, variables and fast-moving variables on what needs to be kept for audit, and what needs to be, you know, live data and the timing of updating of various tables. So it does require quite a lot of coordination to maintain and create one. And the bigger the company and the more countries it's in and the more subsidiaries, it's going to just get worse exponentially. Right. Indeed. Other than actuaries and IT staff, what other sorts of data staff do these organisations typically have when you arrive? Well, they have the IT, there is actuarial. Often in times there is legal and compliance and risk management involved in compliance matters, as you know, anti-money laundering and then fraud management and so they also need access to data for instance in one instant uh, actuaries don't really need personal data for policyholders because you just cut that data out especially if you're having a portfolio that is underwritten somewhere else the actuaries do the calculation however uh, the compliance department may need first name and last name and date of birth those may not have been captured originally in the policy system so they can't do that kind of checks that they need to do. So uh, when creating a warehouse, you can't solely cater to the actuarial team because they often only want aggregated, anonymized data. They don't really care about names, etc. You're reserving, you don't, you don't really need name and postal address. On the other hand, you have other teams that do need that information in particular jurisdictions is regulation to check that the policy is not sold to someone on their blacklist or a sanctions list, you need to really understand when you're creating something for enterprise, it needs to meet everybody's requirements. Including the legal requirements? Of each country, yes. Even if you had an actuary who did want to get access to the personal information, I doubt it would be legal for them to have that sort of access. Indeed. It's, it's on a need to have basis. And then 
the issue becomes retention. In some countries, it says once you no longer need data, you need to delete it. And this time frame varies from country to country. So let's just say you have a table with personal data and financial data, the financial portion may need to be kept for 10 years, the personal portion we no longer need because the policy has lapsed and it's closed and you know the, the period. Had, so we need to think about, do we mask it? Do we anonymize it? Do we make it aggregate for actuarial use? How do we treat it? And then especially if these sit in different jurisdictions, then you need to manage the, the retention, uh, which is quite a complex topic. I don't know if you heard about what happened in Australia a few months back, but we had a number of companies who were hacked here and they'd been keeping data for customers that had left ages ago for decades and yeah, and then that all got leaked. So I think it's very important that companies get rid of data they don't need as soon as possible. There's a hoarding data culture going on and, and this is because data was so scarce at some point in time. We just squeezed as much as we could from this tiny database we all shared. Now there is mountains of data coming in. The data capture because of technology has mushroomed and the data is uncontrollable. The, the volume of data we hold is kind of unsustainable. And I, I am estimating we really only use 20 to 30 percent of the data we hold, which means uh, 70 percent of data is just creating cost and risk. Because if you have a cyber incident, and let's say you've been keeping data from 30 years ago, you've been holding to mailboxes of everyone who's left, if you're hacked, you don't know what is in that data. You don't know what categories data is in, and you don't know how much risk you're exposed to if they're hacked. You don't even know sometimes who to notify, because you may not have the active address, but you may have certain data about the people whose information has been taken. So my, my point would be uh, delete, delete, delete what you don't need. So you've told us what chaos looks like. What's the utopian state that these organizations want to get to look like? I think the utopian state requires uh, quite a bit of investment. I think to get there, there's a degree of denial about foundational work that is involved in being data-driven. People throw that around because being data-driven is the utopian state. And people don't know how much effort and work goes into it. Now, some of the fundamental mistakes that companies make is that governing data is a top-down exercise, which means go big or go home. You cannot govern when you have a tiny team at the bottom of the organizational hierarchy saying that this is our team, we are going to scale up. You cannot scale up data. You cannot come up with a master data for one unit and then expand that to the master data. You can't, it is not something that is easily scalable. Secondly, data themes are all very much interrelated. All of them need to hit a minimum maturity before you can prioritize what can wait and what needs to happen now. You cannot not start all the lanes of data and that includes governance, Metadata, master data, data management uh, involves retention, data protection, data security. All of them need to reach a minimum maturity before you can start prioritizing. Otherwise, you have to you build something, then you have to break it down and build it again because you have forgotten to factor in such and such compliance matters. So this is where the companies are struggling to hit that data driven is because it's a top down exercise. What does that mean, top-down exercise? It means that 
the decision on data assets needs to come from the top and trickle downward, the governance of the data. In my opinion, when you say that you're data-driven, my next question is, who is your chief data officer? If you do not have an answer to that question, you are not data-driven. And the example I give is, if you say you're very customer-orientated, and I ask you, who is your chief customer service officer? And you say, we have one or two people in legal who answer complaints. That does not exactly signal to me that you are data-driven. Now, where should the data function sit is another question because the utopian state heavily relies on those who govern and control the data. In my opinion, the closer to the chief executive, the head of data is, the higher the chance of success. As you move the head of data one layer down, your chances of success for each level that the chief data officer is below the CEO. Why? Because somebody needs to speak and advocate for data. And this voice cannot be filtered through someone whose priorities are is something else. If the data is being the largest asset, someone needs to objectively talk for data. If you manage also data protection, you cannot report to a function that heavily processes personal data. It creates a conflict. So that excludes, to some degree, COO, CUO. So you start going by process of elimination and you find that there is really only one or two ideal places for the data to sit. And that's for me directly either under a CEO or another C who doesn't process data themselves. Otherwise they prioritize their own activities ahead of other others. So the utopian society for me would be a company whereby data appears on every performance objective. Imagine that a lot of organizations would try and put the chief data officer under the chief information officer. We cannot be technology driven when we are dealing with managing data. It is business requirements, data, tool last. Tool must come as a result of complete negotiations and requirements between the data and the business. The tool is the last. However, Technology-driven solutions is what has created the problem. You deploy a tool, people start copying, multiplying, creating more and more reports, thousands of reports, uh, which nobody uses, there is no coordination, there is no governance over the reporting, and then you have a bridge, a leak, a, a system goes down, there is no proper backup, there is no proper classification of the data that's gone missing. So this is what I mean. that. If you put it under the CIO, we need to make sure that the CIO is not leading with technology. There lies the problem. It can sit there. I'm not saying each organization needs to, at some point, to start somewhere. If they don't want to go immediately under the CEO, they can put under CFO, but they need to be aware that in the long term, there needs to be a path upward. And so that's where I was going. That problem is there was data obligations on all of us. Data is a shared asset and we all have responsibilities. However, I find it very hard to see on any person's performance objectives, their obligations to the data. If you own data, you need to make sure it's retained. You need to make sure it's not copied uh, without authorization and approval. You need to make sure that the data is accurate. You need to take some responsibilities for the data that you are using and in servicing, but I don't see those on performance objectives. Therefore, you're putting the entire burden of a shared asset on the data function. 
So this is one thing. It needs to sit at the top such that the obligations everybody has comes with training, proper policy, monitoring, and it is on your objectives. Part of my job as an actuary is to ensure I adhere to the data catalog, that I update the catalog that I have, that I uh, notify any issues with master data, that I will flag, you know, source issues to the correct path. Those needs to be on my objectives. Why? If not, I'll just say, oh, I'll just create another definitional one. And then later, when the reports are trying to reconcile, they won't because there is a new heading that no one has ever, no one has ever seen before. So this is where I think the ideal organization would be to have established mature data function and then people be aware of their obligations. When I've worked in organizations in the past where they've tried to bring in data governance, there's been a lot of resistance to it. It's seen as being this annoying chore that the organization's making people undertake. I could imagine what you've just described with people having data responsibilities on their position statement would also be met with a lot of resistance. Is that what you've experienced in practice? I think if it is on their list of things to do as a part of their job, there will be no complaints because it is part of their job. The problem becomes when it is not part of their job and yet they are expected to spend time on it. There is where the conflict of priorities come. If I sit in any department and they said, you have obligation to report data breaches, you must ensure that ABC, this is part of your obligation adherence to the policy. Then if I spend 30 minutes or a half a day dealing with a data issue and my boss comes and says, what were you doing for half a day? Objective number two, I needed to do this. Otherwise, what happens is like, oh, just forget about that. Continue with whatever else you are doing because that is not part of our performance measure. I get it. So it really depends on how much the powers that be are backing all this, whether they take it seriously or if they're just paying lip service to it. Indeed, if you cannot enforce the policies and the rules and the governance in the first line of defence, you have to go home as the chief data officer. If you cannot, if you are not empowered enough to enforce those without escalations to risk management compliance or other, then you are not sufficiently if you cannot block people from doing the wrong thing and the governance is not about blocking people it's about hearing what they want to do and show them the right way to so you've got these organizations that are a data mess where everyone's got their own little shadow it team going with their own little database and that's your point a your chaos and your nirvana state that's where you've got good data governance You've got a single source of truth. Everyone knows their responsibilities under the data laws and the data policies of the organization. So if that's your point B, how do you get from point A to point B? From point A to point B would be to really spend time. And I encourage CEOs and upper management, rather than just throwing this to one of their senior managers says, hey, it's your job to create a data function and deal with this because it's becoming a problem. I think this is a conversation that needs to happen at a board level to decide what are we going to do to future-proof the company for data risk. At the moment, we have GDPR, we have Digital Operational Resilience Act, we have Data Act, we have AI Acts coming, we have Solvency 2, we have retention laws, we have ICT risks. So my question is, what is the company doing to protect and future-proof? Yes, you may have survived till now, but 
having a data function will not be optional in the future, the same way having a chief technology officer is no longer an optional thing. And I suggest rather than it being forced on you via a regulation and being caught offside saying, oh, you know, we now need to comply within the next two years, take time and think about what you're doing and how you can create a data function that supports your business strategy and supports your compliance. Data functions were created in the 2008 or so off the back of the banking crisis. And at that point for insurance, it was kind of DIY, just manage your own data type of activity. But we are no longer in that point in time. We now have more and more increased regulation and we shouldn't only think of data as a defensive function to make sure compliance is there, but it's also an offensive function because it has AI, it has advanced analytics, it has you know machine learning, it has all those amazing techniques and technology and skills that are coming into the market. So if you are going to want to take advantage of those, you need to have your data function sorted out in advance. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to. There is quite a lot of lovely memes on, on LinkedIn by people in AI who are struggling because the data is not managed to help them drive this forward. So my advice to all upper management would be sit down and have a calm, thorough conversation about what you are going to do with the data. It is not something small. It is probably the most valuable asset in the company. And if it is your most valuable and you want to pride yourself on being data-driven, then let actions speak. Take your time, plan a strategy of how you're going to implement this. Be aware that it needs to be a top-down exercise. If the chief executive does not support this, it's not going to succeed. What sort of timeframes are you talking about once someone does come up with a strategy in order to implement something like this? Depending on the size of the company and jurisdictional expansion of a company, for me, a minimum of two years to start putting things in place is needed. I think it is reasonable to expect up to five years to start getting things to the point that you can start feeling a real impact in a day-to-day -day life of people on the ground. Now, a lot of companies make a mistake of trying to do this as a side project, bringing a consultancy in who will give them a PowerPoint presentation with 30 things to develop. They go start checking the boxes and then they say, we haven't feel, felt the change. This is about outcome, not output. And an external party can only do so much to bring an outcome to the broader company. They can do outputs. Here is a policy on this. Here is a recommendation for a tool. But until you have embedded the function, you're not going to see value. And by embedding the function, I mean that the day-to-day -day activities of people on the ground is in line with the strategy that we have for the data. It needs to be in the day-to-day -day activities of people through communication, training, enablement, management, it needs all happen at the same time. It is not a side project. It is a change management and culture change for the entire company. You keep mentioning you need to bring on everything at the same time, otherwise you're going to have problems. So I take it you're talking about you know the data governance, data management, etc. Mm -hmm. Would you also bring on the data analysts 
team at the same time or would you wait until you have all that data infrastructure set up before you bring on data analysts and data scientists? I think data scientists are probably not at the very start because those are the offensive functions. That is where the fruit of the work comes. I think the defensive ones all need to come at the same time. With a small lag, the data scientists can come because once we start setting up the structure, we need to hear from the users. They are the ones giving the requirements, correct? We cannot develop data management in a vacuum. So the requirements will come from analytics side. It comes from MIBI. It comes from data scientists. We need to know what they are doing so we can cater to them. This is why the data strategy is a chapter in the business strategy. You have a business strategy and then you say, my data strategy is doing this to support me. Those people who develop data strategies without reading the business strategy, they're just wasting their time. The point of a data function is basically to support the corporate vision. What is it you're trying to do? Depending on what you're trying to do, we may staff and resource different lanes in the data function differently. If you're thinking, I want to go to market and collect data and up my marketing, then I may need more data protection people and, you know, systems to collect information on behavior. If you say, I like to go on a cost reduction exercise because, you know, the market is tough, you're not going to make sale, then I'm going to boost up my retention and security and efficiency of data management to make sure we are not wasting money that if you say i want intelligence on the competitors i want to see how i benchmark then i might bring over a different group of people i might bring insight analytics and predictive modeling modelers so i might gear my data function slightly differently so it's very important that we hear about from the data scientists what is it they need what can we prioritize not all data is born the same so we also they can direct us to data sources that are important to them so we can start putting guardrails and safe, protect that, those lanes of data. If you're not using uh, database A, but everybody's using database B, then I'm going to put much more control over B. I'm going to try to make sure it's secure, that access control is actively managed, that there are engineers on a standby should it go down, so I will plan it differently. Okay, so do as little as is necessary before you get the data scientists on and then hire them and proceed with them so that you can get their feedback. Yes, indeed. We need to hear from the users. Yes. One of these things I've seen happen in practice, this was in the bad old days before organisations realised they needed to have data engineers. They'd have their IT team with their databases and then they'd hire their data analysts and data scientists and they wouldn't realise that they needed a data engineer in the middle. And then the data scientists and data analysts would end up basically becoming data engineers in order to actually do their jobs. So I assume in your scenario, you'd get all the governance done first, then bring on the data engineers, then the data analysts and data scientists? Yes, yes, because the requirements for how we do things comes from that, because they are the users of data. In fact, why would I do anything I do with the data unless it was for the data scientists and data analysts? I mean, this is the reason the function exists, is to make your lives easier. 
So we cannot build this without hearing from you. This is a big problem in InsurTech when they have live data, quite a lot of data coming in and their structure is very lean. You need to be very precise to hear from what is it you need and for how long do you need it because this is live data sometimes it's streaming for mobility uh, activities and car intro uh, you know motor intro text you need to talk about what you're capturing and as you know at the moment there is quite a lot of technology to work backward from anonymized data to identify people and intro text if, if the data team is not there to hold their hand very early on they are going to drown themselves in regulatory issues. And this is one of the things that we discussed in when I talked to InsurTechs in this particular data topic. For example, for driving, observing a driver for 90 days is sufficient to establish the risk of the driver, the way they drive. It's, it's enough to establish the profile of the driver. So you don't need to keep data more. 90 days in that sense. If you don't know this, if you're not asking the right questions from the actuary saying, uh, what is the latest? How long do we need to observe this person to be able to sign, you know, premium correctly to them? If they say 90 days, then the data team goes and deletes the data after 90 days. So we reduce the risk of the data person asking access to their data, asking for us to delete the data. We need to have capabilities to also delete data if someone requests it. If we are not there having those conversations with the user, I can't decide autonomously as the data function, I'm going to delete this after 90 days. The date has to come, the time frame has to come from the user, the data scientist, saying, I've gotten out of the data what I need, I don't need it. Or can you mask the data and anonymize it? I need these three elements because I might need it for this purpose. Then we translate that into technical and data activities and then we execute. If that conversation isn't there, there is a problem. That's one of the challenges you often face. Are there any other major challenges that you typically face when you're trying to implement these sorts of data transformations? For me, these the, the points that I've mentioned are the core of it, the communication, the changing call. I, I, in a very, one of the clients I had, uh, I actually said the following. I said, I'm not bringing you new data and I'm not changing your data sources. What I am bringing is I'm changing the way you interact with data. So this is what I'm bringing because you say you're the head of data. Yes, but I'm not data. You know, it's not like I, I come with a, with a good bag of uh, nice data here. You have it. Uh, that's not my job. What I am changing is human behavior. And because this is considered a major change in the organization, company must be ready for change. Readiness is a key point. I have had clients whereby one group is trying to implement a data function, the CFO has other priorities and doesn't want to hear about it. There is a problem. And I cannot, as a head of data sitting in another vertical, force the hand of a CFO. I can't. I am not at a level in an organization where I can say to the CFO, wait a minute, you can't just duplicate the entire database, put it somewhere else, and do something else with it, if I cannot, as head of data, stop that from happening and negotiate a better way, then I'm not in power. So this is the key, that I need to be able to, as someone heading the function, to talk to my peers about the treatment of data. They could say, this is what we need, how do we go about it? Then a few questions will be asked, and maybe there's a better way to go about it, because Business giving IT requirements is a very, very dangerous thing sometimes. 
so are we talking bottom up or top down? So CFO level or? I think when requirements comes from the business, often IT hears something different. Thinking tools and capabilities, whereas business asking for a solution. But because they don't speak the same language, often they end up something that is not quite giving them the output they ask, but not the outcome they have. And I remember taking requirements a while back and I asked the finance team, tell me your requirements. And it went something like this. Imagine in a house, there is a fridge. The light in it is broken. It's leaking a bit and the temperature is not as steady. And I asked them, what are your requirements? The answer was, we want the light to work and it's best if it doesn't leak or smell. This is not a requirement. The requirement will be, we would like a fridge that has this capacity, this temperature and this performance. But they were so suffering with problems that it took many meetings to actually tease out the true requirements. Now, to take tease out those requirements is not within IT capabilities, nor it's their job to tell the finance team, but what do you really want? Oh, I want to have this, but why do you need it for? Oh, I need it because I need to match it to this data set to bring this. So you just want to make sure these two reconciles is something that might be able to be done in a back end, you know, uh, you don't need to do that. So that conversation, there needs to be someone to facilitate it and make it happen. Once that true requirements become clear, then you go to IT saying I need a you know, database that has these capabilities, the auditability, the speed, the capacity, you know, the, so then you can translate those into technical requirements. This IT and business talking together is, I have never seen it go well. So it's start with the result you want and then choose the best tool to achieve that result rather than starting with the tool and then trying to get the result you want from that tool. Indeed, and I think IT should be within the remit to choose the technical capabilities as long as it is the outcome. The problem is business doesn't give good requirements. IT chooses a tool. Business is not this one, I want the other one. And that is as well, it's not up to you to choose the tool. So there becomes the problem that I've seen time and time again, because they are not asked for the outcome. Business has tried to solutionize what would solve their problem because business by nature, there are problems. Though and they have been left to fend themselves for a very long time without the data from. So as an actuary, I want to tell IT, give me this tool. I will fix the rest myself. Just get me this, I'll take it the rest of the way. Because business doesn't want to give away, right? And you want to hold data because this is what an actuary does by nature. Hold data and try to solve your own problems. And the IT is giving you what you're asking for, but then you say, well, what happens when the data is updated? Well, it deletes and puts the new data in. No, this is not what I wanted. I need to have traceability. Well, that was not one of your requirements, now was it? Because nobody asked that a specific question. Someone with a content knowledge to ask how we refresh this because certain columns are monthly, some are daily. How, uh, what, uh, what cap data capture you want? Uh, so those conversations are very interesting to watch. And one of them was that one of the companies I work for, they brought me in specifically to stop IT and business talking. They basically told me, make sure actuaries and IT don't talk without you in that meeting. The problem was that they were trying to move the reserving platform and IT didn't understand 
that the claims need to go in a triangle. It's natural for it not to go in a triangle, right? IT couldn't understand. They kept giving requirements. And because they never thought of the triangle, they kept trying to square it somewhere and they kept coding. The actors would test and it would be wrong. And again, and again, and again. It wasn't until I arrived and I said, this is what we are trying to do. We are trying to get to the end of it, the last column, that ultimate, that is what we are trying to look for. So what I need you now to do is to think in terms of a diagonal. So then they're like, oh, this explains all those weird codes that we've been reading because actuaries have code. And these codes, I, I read the reinsurance SAS code. It was about 200 pages and about 30 different people since the like, 90s have been writing this code, each of them. Literally, when you netted out the, the repeated activities, there was like half of it was deleted. So the IT needed to read this and understand what the business is trying to achieve. It's not an easy thing to do when you're thinking of a reserving process, right? There lies the problem that there's the data function clearly missing to, to kind of translate to the data architects, the data engineers, the enterprise architecture, how this needs to go. And given your actuarial background, I'm sure you would be very popular in the role that you're in because you can actually speak data nerd and actuary. Indeed. And, and actuaries often say, no, no, but, 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 but we need this for this. And, and I know that they don't. They just want it. They don't need it. They want it because they want to exert control over the process. However, they may be easier for them to relinquish power knowing that on the other side in the data there is an actuary managing the data portion of the activity so they're they're a lot more willing to to talk and willing to to speak and there are times i have to say no to them oh can we put this over here we like it in this database we want to put it in this drive no this is part of a critical process you cannot put it somewhere where we can't back it up uh, live you know so I, I have to sometimes explain to them why things can't be done because actuaries always done what they want because the company empowers them to do so but when you need to govern they need to relinquish some of their powers in exchange for better service right and that needs to be negotiated clearly with the actuarial team. Yeah, I can imagine you'd have some people who had built a data empire for themselves yeah. that would be clinging on with their fingernails digging in and stuff like that. And, and I had jokingly said in a team with actuaries, don't lie to me, guys. You're hiding something somewhere. I, I know it. Come on. Tell me where, where those, these drives are because I need, I need to bring them into the new network so we can, we can clearly keep auditability, etc. And they're laughing because I can, I can see that they're they are holding more data because I would. <laughs> it sort of reminds me of the kids who were smoking behind the gym in high school. It is exactly that. You can kind of like, oh, come on, boys. I know you have more. This is not everything. Come on. And there, there are a lot more. It is true. With all your issues with data governance and data management, do you have issues with bringing in open source tools like Python and R to work with that data? Because that's an issue that I know some organisations struggle with. Uh, so far, we haven't had any. Uh, I think uh, every every client I've had the access, they have R deployed and I, they have Python deployed. That's the most commonly used tool. Okay, that's good. Because I remember in one organization, this was quite a while back, you know, they would not look at open source tools. And then 
as things progressed, organizations were looking at open source tools, but they wouldn't allow the data scientists to import their own packages. So the tools were useless. So it sounds like things are actually progressing. Yes, nicely. I think they have progressed. And, and to be honest, some of the actuarial software is not very friendly. For example, I think a lot of actuarial teams could use better reserving tools. And I will not name, there are some older tools that are dominating the market that are not very friendly. They don't lend themselves into proper audit trails because things need to be imported and imported continuously. You cannot auto-feed it. I see part of my function is helping because actuaries are often scared to protrite saying, can we see if we have a better reserving tool or a better tool of such because they, they kind of don't trust that IT understands their requirements. And I think actuaries uh, should feel comfortable looking for better tools that allows an automated activity because we also have quite a lot of end user application developed by actuaries a lot of complex macros a lot of and i think there are currently tools that facilitate those but i think actuaries are potentially too frightened to to change this structure that is built but we do need to get rid of end user computing because as much as we can because they do pose uh, quite a lot of risk to the organization. Uh, they the audit the, the lineage of the data breaks, the, the code, uh, you know, can you need to keep it secure, you need to have backups of it, and all sorts of things that are required by the auditors in, in terms of the end user computing. So I think that could also help the actuaries to kind of turn the page into new tools for actuarial work. Even though I'm recording this episode from Australia, uh, Maria, you're calling in from the Pyrenees between France and Spain, and that's in the EU, which means you've got to deal with the GDPR data laws in your work. Now, you've already talked about having to potentially delete data if you're required to. I assume that's a GDPR requirement. Are there any other ways in which the GDPR impacts your work? GDPR impacts our work in every way because uh, we need to build our processes with privacy in mind. It's called privacy by design. Uh, we also need to be aware that individuals may have right to amend, to delete and access their data. So when we create a process, that needs to be kept in mind. If I cannot isolate and delete a record on request, if I cannot provide a search where the person can access their personal data, then we have a problem because we need to be compliant with GDPR. This is a topic that I often say GDPR is not a compliance topic. It is also a compliance topic, but it is really a data topic because just besides the personal data, which is really important, we also have commercially sensitive data that we need to protect and that is something that is not currently governed by any legislation because it's really in the eyes of the beholder so uh, from the data security perspective i have the personal data which is regulated and then there is a commercially sensitive data that we kind of write the rules for in the company gdpr is important also in terms of data transfer and in terms of data incident management the biggest incidents come from processors of your sub-processors. So uh, let's just say I need to process this data. We've given it to this company to do. Okay, what are they doing? Because my obligations don't end when you hand it over the client data to a third party. 
So I need to know what the third party is doing. So the remits of the data function expands where the data of the company goes. If the data of the company goes to 60 different countries, I need to keep an eye on all 60 countries and everyone who processes the data. And can the data transfer out of EU? Sometimes the answer is no. And if I give it to a payroll company, let's say in London, and then they have a sub-processor in India. Now they all have two problems, GDPR UK, because they're out of EU, and then India has its own privacy laws. So I need to keep an eye on how our uh, you know, data subjects are impacted by that transfer. So GDPR is not just eating the data, but where does the data go? Now imagine in India, they have a data incident because they've been hacked. Now the problem begins where it could have gone, which data, so I need to be able to identify the data of the people who have been breached and I may need to notify them individually. It is quite a big mindset shift that I actually am accountable. The company is accountable to, to the individual and we need to answer to them. There are quite a lot of court cases going on. It's an emerging area of litigation. So I need to keep up to date with all the court cases and all the rulings, especially within EU. And uh, the data protection officer is, uh, is an excellent source of uh, knowledge on those topics uh, for each company. The data protection officer is a, is a regulated role and the person is a named person with the data protection authorities. Their job is to advocate for the data subject. If there's a breach or an incident, the data protection officer needs to be notified. We need to decide if the regulator is going to have to be notified. If the people are notified, we need to establish the level of risk. So this is quite a lot of work. People may not think so, but typically a data function must review every contractual agreement the company gets into to make sure if there's a data transfer within it. You may not think so, but something as simple as a catering company where people's allergies are listed that is something that falls within the remit of the data function. We need to make sure that, because uh, that is health, you know, restricted health data. With the data deletion laws, if you were required to delete a data point which had been used to train some sort of machine learning model, what would happen then? Would you have to retrain the model without that data point or could you keep using that trained model? It depends on what information is used. If the person wants the data deleted, we need to delete the data and there needs to be no way to walk backward to that person's identity from any other capture, data capture. And this does not mean we need to remove them from aggregated data. So if we've added income of a neighborhood and one person removes themselves, we don't need to go and deaggregate it because once we remove the person's files, the rest of the, the, the conclusions can remain because from the conclusions you can't walk you know, work your way back to the person. And this is something we really need to be careful about because technology now allows us to cross-reference multiple sources. And sometimes even you think you've deleted and removed, you can make your way back to the individual again. So this is something that we need to be careful. Yeah, I've heard with GitHub Copilot. So that was trained on all this code that was sourced from GitHub. And some people have managed to actually go backwards to specific pieces of code that they actually wrote yeah this this is what i mean it is not just a compliance topic you cannot expect let's say someone who is a lawyer to understand the intricacies of technology to to ensure that we we need a translator between the regulation point to the technical implementation 
there needs to be a lot of work done to tease out where the weaknesses are. And as uh, there was, there was uh, someone talking about a device that people do to track exercise, and even though the company had anonymized the data, once they captured data from open sources, they could work backward to the individual's home address. So these are the things, even though as a company, you think you've done your part, you've really not done it because technology is evolving so fast that we can't barely keep up. So there needs to be someone on the technology side who is savvy enough to point these things out. These may be things that if you just read the regulation, you may not think to look at, but there needs to be a connection between the regulation strict wording of the regulation and very nitty-gritty, challenging technological aspects of it. Is there anything on your radar in the AI data and analytics space that you think is going to become important in the next three to five years? Yeah, AI is quite an interesting one because all the companies are now talking about AI and what goes into AI is data. What comes out is data. So it directly impacts the data function per se. And also the other topic within the insurance sector is that companies need to make a determination where they stand on AI. It's not a ring, you know, a bell that you can unring. So there needs to be very clear risk assessments of the risk of AI and ethical use of it, uh, management of it, the human uh, controls. So and the AI Act is coming by the end of the year in EU. And if you deploy AI in a multi-jurisdictional company, you may be subjected to that many regulations. So I think managing that alone will require quite a lot of effort. Now, this is strictly from the compliance perspective. However, if you put tool first and you design a tool without thinking of a potential compliance aspects, you may put yourself at the peril of not being able to contain the activities that are happening. So I think that the next phase would be for companies to clearly understand the, and do a risk assessment on AI, then decide on their AI strategy. Because if you put the tool first and then think second about uh, the implications of it, you may find yourself in a situation with a chat GPT, for example. A lot of companies, people have copied and pasted data into their chat containing very confidential information. Imagine if you're uh, drafting an email to the regulator and you think, oh, I can't quite understand how to phrase this last paragraph. Let me stick all of this into ChatGPT. And and exactly, these are all dear moments for me when I hear of these things. And you think, okay, I block ChatGPT, but there are another maybe 30, 40 other ways to get around that. We have to keep up with the technology because they're they're running while we are kind of uh, slowly crawling uh, in the data function. So this is where the risk is between the running and a group that are crawling. The the other one I heard the other day was, no, no, I'm not using ChatGPT. You don't have to worry. I'm using Google Bard. Yeah. Yeah, same thing. (laughs) It's like, yeah, that makes all the difference. No. Uh, exactly, exactly. And I have more and more projects uh, needing consultation because we need to scan financial reports because they come in hard copy or the underwriters need something. Keeping up with technology is, is hard because they are very creative and there are amazing tools out there. 
However, I'd like to see a point where the data function can keep up. In most companies, we are at a point of master data, do we need one or not? Whereas technology is going on a high speed down the highway. And this is where I see the risk. That technology is going to put companies in peril uh, without them realizing it. I remember a few years back, I was working with an organization that had started on a Hadoop data platform when that was the right thing to do. And by the time they'd finished building it, no one wanted Hadoop data platforms anymore. Everyone had started moving to the cloud. So then they had to start moving to the cloud. Yeah, I actually uh, gave a very similar example. Uh, You know, in Pink Panther, one is painting pink around the column and one blue. Sometimes in the companies, I see projects whereby one is saying, we are going to completely move ourselves out of this platform into the other one. Meanwhile, the IT department is buying more capabilities for the platform that the rest of the business is trying to abandon because there's no coordination on the topics. Sometimes when the companies don't have a good communication, it can be that group A is building something, whereas group B is completely changing direction. It is very hard um, for people to understand the immense remit of the data. It's always in the places you don't think. In a given day, the topics uh, that I deal with, and this is part of the challenging part of the managing a data fund. I could be in a meeting discussing a code and AI technology. The next meeting, I could be on a topic to do with a clause in a contract because the data is transferring somewhere else. And the next minute, I'm in a risk management meeting in terms of regulatory solvency to requires ABC. How do we? So the, the, the discipline, disciplines that are involved in running a data function are quite, quite vast. You need a real understanding of many, many topics and themes. And that is very challenging even for me. And I've worked almost in every department in an insurance company. Uh, and, and I find it quite challenging because then you, you, you have a data incident and you're in a team with a team of security engineers and network controls and, and firewalls and they need you to make decisions on topics. So you need to kind of keep yourself up to date with, uh, with quite a lot. And, and it's, it's very, very difficult. What final advice would you give to data scientists looking to create business value from data? The best advice I could give is if your organization does not have a data function, inform yourself on the topic of data management and try to see if while you're not supported by the data function because it may not exist, if you can manage yourself so that down the track you don't have further difficulties because of the form of data. So try to at least self-govern is my advice. Try to work in a clear, structured, governed manner, documented in a way that is understandable. Sometimes when I am onboarding the data function, if I see a particular unit very governed and very structured, I don't try to bring them into alignment with the enterprise. I I try to say they're, they're governed enough. I will educate myself on their governing structure rather than forcing them to align to the enterprise because I think they have quite a lot of good processes and I can just allow that to continue without enforcing the more enterprise-wide structure on them. So it does help. 
I, I have uh, with many clients, they, they run really meticulous uh, teams, some of the units uh, underwriting sometimes, they're just impressively organized and structured. Within their little bubble, they have very well governed uh, structures and that's really excellent, it, it helps. So act as though the governance is actually there. Or actually have a discussion on it, saying how are we going to govern you know, this piece? Uh, you know, definitions are kept here, who is responsible for it, who is keeping track of the you know, code governance. You, you can work in a structured way and, and that, that does help in the long run. So for listeners who want to learn more about you or get in contact, what can they do? I'm on LinkedIn. You can uh, definitely reach out if you're in senior management or board or CEO and you think, yes, we could use a thinking partner, feel free to reach out. If you're interested in the data function and want to work in one, drop me a note if you have any questions or you have any comments about the, the podcast. Thank you for joining me today, Maria. Thank you very much for having me. And for those in the audience, thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and this has been Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting.